Welcome to Big Blend Radio's Nature Connection Show with Lisa and Nancy, publishers of Big Blend Magazines and nature photographer Margot Carrera. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. We're so excited to have Margot Carrera back on the show with us as co-host. You know, she's the fine art nature photographer here. And we're also welcoming Professor David Sedlak on the show. He is the author of a couple of books about water, and his latest one is Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. It's out now through Yale University Press, so get it where you get your books. Um, but I will also put links to his websites in the show notes. So whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening in Spotify or wherever you're getting this podcast, um, you'll be able to get the links over to that. So welcome back, Margo. How are you? Doing great, and it's so good to be with you, and I'm anxious to get listen to this interview, and it's one of the subjects my family uh, care about dearly. Well, I think water is life, right? Uh, David, welcome uh, to the show. How are you? Oh, I'm doing very well today. Uh, nice to meet you, Lisa, Margo. Looking forward Yay. to talking about the book with you. Yeah, great. water, water for all. I love the title because it is like water is life, and um, and I think about water in so many ways, whether it is what we're getting out of the faucet, what's happening to habitats. And your book really goes into six major issues that we're dealing, crisis, really, right? The crises that we're dealing with in the world, around the world. And as park travelers, um, we have been to national wildlife refuges in certain areas that are top birding destinations in, in the spring and winter because of the being a water place and when we got there i'm filming dust devils there's zero water prime season for these migratory birds and there's no water it's bone dry um and this has been in multiple states and it is literally devastating and i grew up in in africa and kenya and south africa and have been through real droughts like if you go to a hotel you have to pay for a deposit for a plug and they have lines on the bathtubs. They, you're not allowed, you know, if it's yellow, let it mellow kind of thing. Real deal. And been through parks with skeletons, the whole thing. And I think traveling, we really get to see it in our own country. But this is really a global issue we have to look at, right? All the whole globe looking at these six issues. Well, I think water is uh, a a global issue. And I think one of the things that is difficult for people to conceive of is the way in which the experience they have in water relates to experiences that people have in water and other places. And part of my motivation for writing the book was that there's a lot of discussion about the global water crisis or this idea that the way in which climate change is going to impact humanity is through water. But it seems like there's so many different ways that it happens that it can be very confusing to see the relationship between a drought halfway around the world and your own particular concerns about uh, flooding or water shortages in your community. And then you pair that up with the fact that there are millions of people around the world that don't have access to safe drinking water. And it feels like it's more than just one crisis. It's a, a number of crises. And what I tried to do in the book is to relate those uh, crises and, more importantly, their solutions to each other. Mm -hmm. And I think once we start to see that it's not just one crisis, it's multiple crises, 
and that people are starting to have success in addressing the crises in these different places, we can learn from each other and use that learning to solve problems that seem intractable. When it comes to water, is it um, is it similar to even our own health that like what we eat, like one person's diet may be different to another person's diet? Is it the same even like, you know, we were just in Louisiana and Louisiana is going through a drought. Minnesota was going through a drought. When we were there, we're going, we're looking at it going, this doesn't look like a drought to me, but for them it was. So are their solutions to their issues going to be different than, say, in California where Margo is? Yeah, so every water crisis is a little bit different because not only do we have different climates and rainfall patterns, we have different geology and geography, and we also have different uh institutions. That is, in some places, we have very high population densities. And so the main way in which water is used is for public water supply. And in other places, we have a lot of agriculture and irrigated agriculture. And so the main needs for water are tied to agriculture. And yet in other places, that water is really important for sustaining ecosystems. And so uh, the problems manifest themselves in different ways, because no two places are exactly alike when it comes to their sources of water and the way that water is used. And I think that's one of the things that tends to uh, frustrate people in terms of uh, solving problems. That is, if it's a problem with energy, you know, it's more similar in places, you know, you could, you could put in solar panels or wind farms, or you can uh, generate hydroelectric power, or you could use fossil fuels to solve an energy problem. But when it comes to water, uh, the ability to do it is is harder because we rely upon uh, nature to be a source of water and also a place to store water and a partner in the way that water is used. And that, I think, means that solving water problems is a distinctly local or regional mm-hmm. problem, but the technologies and the learning is a global endeavor. And so we have to mm-hmm. be both aware of our local environment and its needs, but we also have to see what people are doing in other parts of the world to address water crises, because we can't be relied upon to invent the solutions at home. Well, when you talk about local, let's look at the Colorado River as a great example, right? That's the Nile of America, like one of the Niles. And that's a huge issue, right? And it's, and it's important for the natural ecosystem. It's, it's, it's important to tribal lands. It's important to, um, you know, American lands, you know, which are also tribal lands. But like, if you go to like Yuma, Arizona, they rely on that for agriculture. Margo relies on it in San Diego and LA relies on Colorado River water. So it's kind of regional in that you're in the Southwest kind of, right? But at the same time, there's all these water laws. Like I know Yuma's holding on to their laws and their rule, like this is mine. You ain't touching it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause of the agriculture. But if you go to Tucson, they're dealing with a different set of issues, right? So, um, how about the sharing part of it? Because that I almost feel like we could go to war with this. Well, the Colorado River is a great example, and it's one of of many examples around the world where there is a a major waterway, uh, a river in this case, that lots of uh, people share over an entire region, or in this case, a large fraction of, of the western part of the United States. And it's critical for, uh, like you said, for 
uh, agriculture and for cities and for ecosystems. When the country was a lot less populated, especially in the West, uh, the states came together and uh, created a compact, a, a, a way to share the water in the Colorado River. And the years when that was done happened to be in a very wet period. And so when it came time to divvying up the water, they overestimated the amount that was available. And they probably also never anticipated how many people would move into the American West and how many demands there would be placed on that water. Now, we've limped along for many years with a, a set of water laws and regulations for managing the Colorado. And I think that we would probably be able to continue to uh, limp along and, and bring out lawyers to argue about water rights and, and kind of make slow progress if it weren't for climate change. So what we're seeing in the American West is a phenomena that's referred to as aridification. And that's different from a drought. And it's different from what most people think about when they think about climate change. So in the American West, it's not just that we get these more frequent and extreme droughts, but in between the temperatures warmer, and that means that water evaporates more quickly. So it's not just our imaginations that the land dries up faster. Uh, when the average temperatures are higher, that means that that water not only evaporates from the reservoirs, but it evaporates faster from the farmer's fields, and it evaporates faster when the snow is melting and some of that snow melt doesn't make it into the reservoirs in the first place. So we're seeing this gradual uh, phenomena of ridification, which means that every year less and less water is available and more and more water is needed to grow food and keep cities going and maintain ecosystems. And so the size of the pie is shrinking over time. The number of people who want uh, water from the Colorado River is growing and the existing uh, system of water rights and uh, and fighting and negotiating over it isn't going to get us where we need to be in the coming decades. Uh, yeah, I feel like we're in a lot of meetings lately in this <laughs> world and we need to get past the meetings and just get to it. And I think a lot of people are feeling that it's kind of like, hello, can we get on with it and stop meeting? Just do, you know, and, and I wonder about you know, you're talking about, okay, so this water is evaporating quickly. And um, at the same time, we're experiencing mass flooding in regions. So are we able to capture that water? Or is that just like we're losing water just even from that in a way, if it's in areas that aren't used to it? Well, well let me back up to something you said there mm -hmm. a moment ago before talking about the, the kind of flood drought oscillation back and forth. And that's this idea that we're moving towards a state of crisis. And I think that's one of the main insights that I tried to make in the book is that crises are times of change. So mm -hmm. when things are behaving in a normal way, you use the usual tools. When a crisis occurs, the first thing you try to do is use uh, your existing tools to just patch things up. And sometimes that works if the crisis is short, and, uh, and, and just a one-off event. But if these crises occur with greater frequency and they're more severe, it's time to rethink things. And I think one of the ideas here is that we know that 
a lot of our water crises are going to get worse and we have to be ready with a series of plans of something new because the status quo just isn't going to hold in the coming decades. And that gets us to things like this cycle of droughts and flooding. So in the American West, in, in lots of arid climates around the world, that's a normal pattern of extremes going from very wet mm-hmm. years to very dry years, going from seasons that are very dry to seasons that are very wet. And there's a long history of humans taking advantage of this and using that switch from wet to dry to provide them with water. And a great example of that is India, where mm-hmm. the majority of the water arrives in a very short period during the monsoon season. And for millennia, uh, people in India have been figuring out ways to capture and hold on to a lot of the water that falls in the monsoon so that they can use it for agriculture and water supply later in the year. So, you know, if you look around the world, you look to uh, parts of the Middle East, like in, in Yemen, where they pioneered a technology known as spade irrigation. If you look to uh, places like uh, like India, where they practice uh, uh, the capture of, of, of rainwater and they get it into the ground to use as aquifers, they don't rely entirely on uh on reservoirs and dams to hold their water. There are tools that we're not fully accessing that can be used to take advantage of this so-called hydrological variability. And we're starting to do that in places like California, where Mm -hmm. in the wintertime when it rains, uh, farmers are experimenting with flooding fields and Mm -hmm. letting the water percolate into the ground and recharge Mm -hmm. the groundwater. That was something that uh, you know, 20 years ago, if you asked a farmer, would you flood your field in the winter uh, to provide you with water in the summer, they would have been very concerned, especially if they had uh, perennial crops like 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 trees or vineyards, because they would have worried that in the springtime, the flooded fields uh, would be would remain when the plants uh, uh, left their period of dormancy and that the plants would suffocate from being uh, under floodwaters. But if you do it correctly, uh, if you have the right soil and right underlining geology, we're finding that you can route those floodwaters into farm fields. And that's essentially the way nature behaved with respect to water before people came along and started uh, farming. That is, we had flood plains where the water, the winter waters would uh, be free to go and percolate mm-hmm. into the ground. But once we started building cities and started building farms and started building roads, we had to build levees to keep the mm-hmm. areas from flooding. And we became very concerned about letting the rivers run to where they wanted to go because it could get in the way with our ability to grow food or our uh, ability to to live in a place. Is, you know, we we actually do a lot of interviews with farmers and, and vineyards. We must save the vineyards. Okay, this is very, very important. I know you're up in Berkeley in California, but uh, but I, have, I you know, um, what I've learned is that a lot of farmers are and, and I want to bring this up very importantly, because people go against farmers and I'm like, well, how are you going to eat? Okay, so there's all kinds of different ways of farming and farmers. But every farmer I know, whether it's a winemaker or someone growing nuts or, um, you know, peaches, their water is the, at the top of their priority. You know, water, they do not, I don't know farmers that just waste water. I've never met one who does. Um, so I kind of want to touch on that because it also seems that farming now has gone into very technological 
the ways of monitoring the weather and water usage and that AI, we can all get scared of it, but it seems like AI, artificial intelligence, is really helping in regards to monitoring water. Have you seen that in your work? Well, I think is important with respect to agriculture is to realize that globally, it's time for us to go into uh, a second green revolution. So, of course, the mm-hmm. first green revolution occurred in the middle of the 20th century with synthetic uh uh, nitrogen fertilizers and new types of plant breeding that allowed us to feed uh, the billions of people who were born in the 20th century. Here in the 21st century, we still have a need to grow more food. It's been estimated that by the year 2050, the world's farmers are going to have to grow 70% more food. And that's going to have to take place on essentially the same amount of land. There isn't, I mean, you could talk about cutting down rainforests and the like, but really the farmland that we have today is the farmland that we're going to have in the future to grow this additional increment of food. And we're going to have to apply the same sorts of creativity and technological prowess and policy expertise to greatly increase the the yields of uh, crops that we have. And Water may end up in many places to be one of the limiting factors in our ability to grow food. And so what we've seen over the past 30 years has been a revolution in the way in which we apply water to farm fields, at least in places like North America and uh, and like Italy and Spain and Australia, where it's been a focus. And so we've shifted from a period where 30 years ago, farmers might be practicing flood irrigation And we've gone through sprinklers uh, in many parts of the world, so center pivot irrigation and and drop nozzle sprinklers. And then more recently, uh, farmers have started to adopt drip irrigation and the use of moisture sensors and things like that. And so there is an ability to deliver more food for the same amount of water. Sometimes people refer to it as more crop per drop. But this is not yet a global phenomena it, it's something that uh, exists mainly in wealthy countries. And so we're going to see the innovations in irrigation moving to uh, to China and to India and Africa and South and Central America to allow people to grow more food. Here, closer to home, the issue of water and food is not as much one of starvation as it is in maintaining the rural economies and growing the kinds of healthy foods that we all value and making sure that they have uh, reasonable prices. And so the issue of water in agriculture, especially in the American West, which is the part of the country where most of the irrigation is practiced, um, is going to become more important. But the answer Mm -hmm. to that issue is a little bit more subtle. I think we're going to see the kinds of things that have happened in California in the last two decades expand to more of the rest of the West. And that is uh, farmers are growing more high value crops. And so they're growing instead of growing uh, alfalfa and cotton uh, with government subsidies in many cases, mm-hmm. they're growing uh, wine grapes and, and nuts and stone fruit. And that not only leads to higher profits for the farmers, it leads to more employment in rural communities. 
So we see that, um, you know, when we start talking about water in agriculture, we have to differentiate between farmers that grow cereals and grains and rely upon rain-fed agriculture to farmers who grow things like wine and fruits and nuts specialties, and, yeah. and specialties. And that is something that, that really lends itself to uh, not only drip irrigation and moisture sensors, but uh, better weather forecasting and, uh, and, and high tech approaches like uh, advanced plant breeding. Uh, and, and I think that there's a lot of possibilities and a lot of it's happening in the US. And I think that the, the thing I've learned about agriculture in researching this book is that agriculture is dynamic. We're not stuck in time, but it's constantly evolving and improving. And the farmers who succeed are those that are open-minded to new innovations. And, uh, and, and I, I think that there, there is a future for agriculture in this country and there is uh, a chance for farmers to be prosperous, but um, it involves uh, kind of a coordination between uh, the, the farmers themselves and, and the government to, to envision what a future of agriculture looks like, especially in a hotter, drier climate where we, we mm. can't necessarily uh, grow the same things. It's very interesting about what you're talking about because we look at things like wine as, oh, specialty and high end, more for the um, the richer communities, right? More affluent, right? And yet at the same time, that is actually what's driving the technology to go forward, right? So we can't really go, you know... we. As environmentalists, it used to be like golf courses were the worst. But what I'm seeing is golf courses are actually changing. They're becoming Audubon certified and starting to use reclaimed water and you, and becoming a bird area, a birding destination. Birders flock to these kind of golf courses. I don't know how good it is, but I'm seeing um, places. We, we've been to Tucson. Arizona has a place called Sweetwater. So does Gainesville, Florida, and I've been to both. And they are both water reclamation areas that have now become areas for wildlife habitat. So you see bobcat in oh, in both places, alligators. I saw alligators hanging out where here's the, the water changeover station. And I'm going, there's alligators hanging out, you know? So um, I find that really interesting to me to see that these affluent areas are making these changes, but and environmentally, as environmentalists, I think we may have gone after them beforehand. But changes have been made in a way, right? So, am I on? Am I right about this? Are we on a positive now? Well, I I think that you're 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 right in terms of places like Sweetwater or other places where uh, the waste from a sewage treatment plant is actually now seen as an environmental attribute instead of a blight on the landscape. Um, so, um, in in places where um, where sewage treatment plants uh, are located, they have a huge amount of water that goes out into the environment. Now, now, 50 or 70 years ago, you tried to get it out of the city as quickly as possible because the, the, the wastewater wasn't fully treated. But with modern wastewater treatment plants, the water that comes out is quite clean and can be very safe for, uh, for ecosystems. So there are numerous places around the United States, uh, the Santa Ana River in Southern California, the Trinity River in, in Texas, uh, the, uh, the, yep, the, the Salt River <laughs> and other places in Arizona yeah. where wastewater is the main source of water flowing in a river. 
or flowing into a wetland and they become ecologically important places, uh, bird migration stopover points. And we see that uh, using our wastes as a way to restore ecosystems and to create habitat is uh, is something we might want to do with it. So this is this idea, and I talk about it in the book, that humans run the rivers. There are very few waterways in the world that are free-flowing anymore. So we either have a dam or a reservoir, or we divert water for agriculture, and it runs back into the system as tailwater coming off of a field, or we take water and put it in the city, and it returns to the environment through sewage treatment plants. We have to stop ignoring the fact that we're in charge of the hydrologic cycle and where the water goes is not just where it wants to go, it's where we tell it to go. And so there are great opportunities to uh, operate our dams and reservoirs, to use our sewage treatment plants, to use our agricultural runoff to create and improve habitat. Mm -hmm. And that's going to become ever more important as uh, there's less and less unclaimed water out there. Mm. Uh, um, so in some ways, uh, it's us to, up to us to, um, to think about, uh, the environment as one of the water users that has a right to the water. And I think one of the things in the book that, uh, that I think people may find interesting is this idea that the environment actually has rights that sometimes supersede uh, other water rights. And, mm. and, and this is an idea that um, started to gain momentum in New Zealand, where the, the Maori people have, uh, have standing in the constitution that's, that's equal to that of the colonists and sometimes supersedes them. And, and they advocated for the idea that a river can have legal standing and can have rights to water that sometimes mean that humans don't take as many rights. And here in North America, we're starting to see uh, tribal nations asserting those kinds of water rights for natural systems. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you've ever been up to the Klamath River in uh, the border of uh California and Oregon, but we mm -hmm. had a, a series of dams come down recently. And part of the justification for taking down the dams was the, uh, the fishery for the Yurok mm -hmm. people who live up there. But also that river has been, uh, declared, uh, an, a, a living entity with water rights of its own. And I think we'll see developing in the coming years, this new understanding that as water becomes more scarce, we have to recognize that nature has a right to water. And sometimes that right to water uh, takes priority over our rights to grow food. Or, well, or I think send it's really fascinating to too, because the um, nature understands how to clean water better than us sometimes. And the native Americans, if you go and see how they used to clean water and it was by basically creating many waterfalls and letting, you know, the, the grasses, the natural grasses also be, purifiers for the water um you know if you go to like different areas in new mexico uh even bandelier national monument has it where you can see what a waffle garden looks like and they show how they worked with the water to clean and how they did their crops it was it was just so smart and it was a hundred percent mimicking nature you know and it's like it was inter interesting to see in these ancestral places how they started to do agriculture 
because now we're getting into that civilization mode, right? And and it's the whole thing with water is here we come, we're going to be civilized and we're going to do agriculture. And that's where I think everything changed. And so those areas you can still go see and learn from even for your own garden. I have friends who live, you know, their garden is fed 100% off of rain barrels, especially like if you live in Arkansas and places like that, you can do it. And, and I remember, oh my gosh, I'd say 15, maybe 20 years ago, rain balls, barrels were illegal in certain cities and we had to have a fight on that. So it's it's really interesting how we've gone with this water, but you're really right about it. I mean, America Samoa is part of our country, right? It's part, one of our um, territories. Yet, there's this huge land dispute, even within, I mean, do we, do they really want to become American where they can vote? You know, Puerto Rico, same thing. And part do, and they want to be, but it comes down to the land because then American agriculture could come in and take out their natural systems. And so it's very, they're, they're kind of, that is the barrier is their land exactly what you're talking about with the Maori people and some of the tribal lands here in North America of them saying, no, we need to let the rivers flow. We need to let everything be as nature intended and um, fascinating, man. So we kind of, we need to go backwards in a way yet use technology what we have. (laughs) I I think, I, I think that that's true in some, some degree that, you know, it's important to let wild places be because nature Mm -hmm. has this great, uh, assimilative capacity and ability to purify water. And we often do that around our dams and reservoirs. We set aside land as nature preserves and we keep, uh, development out of there. And we often keep people out of there. But we also have to recognize that uh, we've changed the landscape in many ways, and sometimes there's a need for active intervention. So it's a little bit of a fantasy to think about uh, land that's not actively managed. Like that's what we're right. learning here in the West, that our, our unwillingness to manage forests and to uh, to actively burn them like the Indians did uh, before the West was colonized has led to a lot of our problems with wildfires. Similarly, uh, invasive species of plants also get in the way of water management in many ways, because mm. sometimes we bring in plants for uh, tree farming or for uh, to have around our homes and they get out into na- natural areas and they crowd out the native plants mm. that are better adapted for the local water system. So I think many people remember this idea of Cape Town in South Africa having its day zero where it was going to run out of water. And a lot of the attention was focused on the dams and reservoirs and the way that people used water. But there's also uh, an issue that was affecting the amount of water that made it to their uh, reservoirs. And that was uh, invasive tree species and shrubs that had got out into the catchment around the reservoirs. And these trees and shrubs used more water than the native grasses that were there before. And Mm -hmm. so one of the strategies that's being pursued in Cape Town to increase the water supply is actively going and removing the invasive plants. And by actively removing the invasive trees and, and bushes, it's restoring the ecosystem. And that's a very unique and, uh, an important ecosystem for, uh, for, for bird species and, and, and wildlife. But it also means that more of the water that falls in rainstorms makes it to the reservoir and dam and can be used by the city. 
So there's this idea of like actively managing uh, ecosystems mm-hmm. and, and helping to undo some of the damage that we've done historically and also uh, leaving them as open spaces for uh, for this natural process of purification and water storage. So every place is different. It really is. And I find this fascinating about it because I think it opens this, it, it, while this is all this crisis, right? And and we have a, a ticking clock going, hello, get on with it now. Um, you know, you, you can't just sit on it. It also opens up these doors for us to understand how life happens, how life works, how our water systems are. So I find it like this also exciting thing, even though it's a scary thing. I find it in, like it, a land of opportunity for people to think outside the box and actually create these, you know, solutions. So there's there's a positive to all this. I, you know, on our shows, we don't want we've done the shows like bang the drum and everybody goes, all right, all right. You know, um, it doesn't work. So, you know, there is hope and there are ways to manage and do things and coexist and I think when we get to these levels, this is where we start to understand how nature works. And that actually does bring about true coexistence over time. So I appreciate your book, Everyone Water for All. David Sedlak is out now through Yale University Press. And we'll put all the links in the show notes. You can get it on wherever you get books. And unfortunately, we lost Margot. I don't know. She touched her screen and she disappeared. <laughs> I don't know what to her. She went floating. I don't know, but um, I know she had questions for you, but thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you for having me, Lisa. It's been a pleasure and really appreciate your work. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for listening to Big Blend Radio's Nature Connection Show. Follow us at bigblendradio.com and keep up with Margot at margocarrera.etsy.com.